This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. I'm Tanya Mosley. In 1987, my sister Anita vanished without a trace. Decades later, thanks to DNA, we found her. But that's only the beginning of the story. She Has a Name is a new audio documentary that explores the search for redemption, confronting trauma, and healing in the face of unimaginable loss. Subscribe now to Truth Be Told Presents She Has a Name, where every revelation brings us closer to the truth. Hi, this is Women Who Travel, a podcast from Condé Nast Traveller. I'm Lale Arakoglu, and with me, as always, is my co-host Meredith Carey. Hello. In this week's episode, we're catching up with Hawa Hassan, founder of Somali condiments brand Bas Bas and author of the upcoming cookbook In Bibi's Kitchen, which shares the stories and recipes of grandmothers from eight African countries. We've been dying to get our hands on this book ever since we heard about it, and we can't wait to get chatting. Thank you so much for joining us. This feels so serendipitous because I casually mentioned your cookbook on a previous podcast episode and was like, oh, <laughs> thinking like, oh, maybe she'll see it. I don't know. And then immediately got an email. So I'm so excited that we get to chat with you today. So you moved to the U.S. from Somalia as a refugee at seven without the rest of your family and spent most of your childhood surrounded by family friends. What role did food and cooking play for you during that period of your life? Well, once I arrived in the U.S., the idea of making food or consuming Somali food was something that was very far away from me. So I didn't end up eating Somali food in my formative years. You know, unless I went to a friend's house, then that was something, you know, obviously I expected their moms to cook, but I did not eat Somali food regularly again until I moved to New York City in 2005. And by then I was like missing the idea of home and it being a place and the people that are my bloodline. And so then as a way to reconnect with that, I started cooking it for myself. But prior to that, I really stopped eating Somali food in, I would say around the late 90s. Do you remember kind of in those early years in the US missing that food? So I really had missed the smell of a kitchen. I missed, you know, cinnamon and cardamom and, you know, cloves toasting. I missed those kind of things because they triggered something for me when I did when I did smell it. But I was really, really lucky in that I didn't have any parameters around what I could try. So I think about if my mom was living in the U.S., obviously I wouldn't have been eating pepperoni pizza. Um, <laughs> But then here I was now, like, eating pepperoni pizza almost every single day at school. When you started to eat more Somali food again, did you start to kind of learn things about your palate that maybe you hadn't been aware of before? 
Yeah, I mean, I think that once I was cooking again and I was like in charge of what I was consuming and I was like deciding every day how to cook and what to cook, um, I realized how much I'd missed warm spices. For a long time in the U.S., I was like, I was eating with my best friend and her family. And so I'd been eating like barbere and mitmita, which are spices from Ethiopian and Eritrea. But I really missed the subtleness of Somali spices and I missed the sweet and savoriness of it. And so that that was like something that was awakened in me a little bit later as well. When you were talking earlier about kind of wanting to reconnect with home and and the idea of home and finding that through cooking, kind of what pushed you towards cooking as a way to do that and what kind of came out of it? Well, before I got into the business of food, I was a model. So from the time I was 16 years old to the time I was about 29 years old, I'd modeled. And so modeling had taken me all over the place. And I think one of the things that I became really good at when I was modeling is I became a bit of a chameleon and I took on stories and narratives, you know, narratives, ideas, anything that my agency and my bookers had placed on me, I ran with it because the best thing that you can be as a model is to be a chameleon. It's to be a girl who's black but can also pass for, you know, what they would say exotic as if it's like a person is a fruit. But a lot of my ideas of who I was were based on this identity that was built for me. And so very early on when I moved to New York, I realized how important it was for me to recenter the story on a positive note, just about not only myself, but about Somalia. Like, how do people talk about refugees? You know, refugees are displaced people. They're not poor and destitute all the time, you know? Um, They're just people who are experiencing conflict from where they're at. And like, I think now the term of refugee has changed a lot, right? But like, in the early 2000s and the late 90s, it was it was just it was what we saw on TV, which were it was about hunger and poverty in a way that it's not a, it's not like that anymore. It's not spoken about in that tone anymore. Why do you think in recent years the conversation around the word refugee has changed? Why, where do you think that progress has taken place? Um, I think it's taking place in the sector of uh, aid, right? Like, I also think that the people in charge are starting to look different. You know, they're displaced people themselves. So, you know, you can't talk about a whole group of people when no one in, in that room looks like them. I also think that people have become more PG about what they say about folks that they don't know much about, which I I, I appreciate. But ultimately, I think it's due to the fact that people who come from those places have access to now creating the narratives about those places. So in creating your cookbook, you helped share narratives of almost 20 women from eight different African countries, including Somalia. How did you formulate the idea for this book? And how did you go about building this community of women? So when I started my business, I knew that with Best Best, I can go to the table. But then I knew that how hard it would be to crack a Western palate via just condiments, right? And so I started thinking about how do I start talking to people that no one is talking to? And how can I do that from my part of the world? You know, and then how can I tie that together for people 
and make it fun, right? Like I didn't want to bored people, but I, I wanted to say like, if you're familiar with Indian food, then you have no problem trying foods in Zanzibar. And let me show you the way that the Indian Ocean affected these parts of Africa. And let me show it to you from a place that you can also see yourself in, which is grandmother. And then let us name it something that you know how to pronounce. So a lot, you know, it was very strategical. And then in the way that I was able to find a lot of the women was really through friends and family. Um, you know, I lived in Kenya. I lived in Cape Town. I live in New York. Two of the grandmothers are in Yonkers. So it was just word of mouth. It's about asking my friends in Tanzania, who do they know? It was about asking my friends in London, who they knew in Kenya. It was about asking my friend in Johannesburg for her auntie in Cape Town. So it was just a lot of using the network I had built over the years. It really does feel very much like something that had come together organically because I was already a part of a part of that community in one way or another. You know, the recipes have very rich histories. You know, you, you touched on the influence of the Indian Ocean, for example, and a lot of these recipes have been handed down through generations. Why did you feel compelled to consider the past when you were creating this book? Especially as I feel like a lot of food writing and food media is always trying to kind of like look towards some sort of trend or future. Yeah. I mean, that was something we were really cautious about is that we didn't want to talk about what's new and next, but we really wanted to talk about how do you preserve? How do you tell stories through these matriarchies and how do you do it from a place of integrity? How do you honor these stories? How do you hold them? And, you know, I could speak about Africa from a very monolithic space, which the West has kind of done, but that for me was not interesting because it didn't feel real and it isn't real, right? And so in, in the way that I'm hoping to share these stories is that anything I do in my career going forward is not about what's new and next and what's trendy, but about how do I preserve my culture? How do I leave a legacy behind that my children can be proud of um, and that my grandmother will be excited to be a part of? When you approached these women to talk to them about their stories and their food, what was that research process like? Um, what did your travels look like? How did that pan out? So a lot of the women, you know, like I was saying, came through friends and family. And so I think a bit of it was like explaining to them what the idea was, but they really, they came alive when it was time to cook or like when you're telling them, I'm just going to sit with you and you're going to cook and I'm going to ask questions. They were like, oh, okay, great. The travel part was a little bit tricky because our photographer Khadija is based in Nairobi. A lot of what we did was scheduled around her. And so you know, it was about how do you get Khadija to the States? How do you then travel around the States? How do you let her go home? And then because I didn't have, I'm not a US citizen and I have a, I travel on what's called the I-131. I'm a green card holder. And so that was a little bit, of, it was tricky because the travel advisory was changing month to month. And so a lot of it just had to do with juggling, being flexible, and then using our resources on the ground. Like I knew people in Madagascar that could get the job done. So it was tapping into that resource, um, tapping into people who live in Norway to help me translate in, Medi in, in Mozambique. So again, community was really the backbone of this cookbook and what brought it to life. Whether you were 
physically in these kitchens or it was over Zoom or Skype or, you know, whatever sort of virtual thing. Kind of talk us through, you know, what were some of the sort of memorable kitchens and experiences you had kind of talking and cooking with these women? I think for me, the most memorable would be, okay, it's not very far, but being in the kitchen with Ma Vicky, who lives just outside of New York City, and, and Ma Gannett, who also lives outside of New York City, what would be two, three hours would turn into like a full day, you know? It was it was never ending, and it was eat this, and don't sit there, sit in the most, more comfortable chair, wear this, drink that. Um, you know, an instant familiarity with one another and then a belonging to each other in each other's homes or spaces was something that I, I walked away from being in their homes feeling like I felt welcomed. I felt like royalty in a lot of ways. I felt like I, I was treated with tenderness, um, which I think last year I really needed a lot of. So that, yeah, that that's what it was like when I was in person. And then oftentimes, like when we were on Skype, which I hadn't used Skype for a long time, uh, but people back home still use a lot of Skype or WhatsApp. That was really tricky because internet um, in some places like Madagascar was going out at 8 p.m. every night. So it was a lot of me being up at like four o'clock in the morning or 1 a.m. and then doing the doing the recordings and then going back to sleep, then going to work the next morning. <laughs> you um, said that you experienced a lot of tenderness from these women, which was something that you felt that you needed last year. Did you expect to have those sorts of connections or were you surprised to be kind of feeling that way and, and craving that when you were spending time with these grandmothers? Um, you know, I always feel like when I walk into an elder's home, I'm often received in a way that feels like family immediately. And so I didn't go into it expecting that, but I did know that going in, I would be taken care of in that, like I would be treated like a daughter. And so I, I knew that that was a given. And, you know, I went into every setting with a gift. <laughs> so like I was coming in with stuff just to say like, thank you for welcoming us, you know, here's this. I think what was so scary and so heavy for me last year was, I was embarking on this new journey. I was telling these new stories and I was I was expected to carry these stories and I didn't know that I I didn't know I could. And so I lived in like I lived somewhere between like inspiration and fear a lot of last year. Does the response that the book has gotten I guess it'll be out the day before this podcast goes live, but it's already been very well received. Um, <laughs> does that give you a little bit of the peace of mind you might have needed last year? You know what will give me peace of mind is when 10 African cookbooks come out in one year. And when the women who this book is about say, wow, I look so pretty. Oh my God, look at my recipe, you know? Um, th those are the things that for me will move the needle. Hi, I'm Jeremy Larson, the Reviews Director of Pitchfork, and this podcast is supported by Pitchfork Music Festival. Pitchfork Music Festival will take place July 19th through the 21st at Union Park in Chicago, Illinois. This year's lineup features Jamie XX, Alanis Morissette, Black Pumas, Carly Rae Jepsen, Brittany Howard, Jay Paul, Muna, Jesse Ware, 100 Gex, and many more. 
The festival also features diverse vendors as well as a specialty record, poster, and craft fairs and works to support local businesses while promoting the Chicago arts and food communities as a whole. For more information on tickets and lineup, visit pitchforkmusicfestival.com. I'm Tanya Mosley. In 1987, my sister Anita vanished without a trace. Decades later, thanks to DNA, we found her. But that's only the beginning of the story. She Has a Name is a new audio documentary that explores the search for redemption, confronting trauma, and healing in the face of unimaginable loss. Subscribe now to Truth Be Told Presents She Has a Name, where every revelation brings us closer to the truth. We've spoken about the challenge of getting the book deal, and you mentioned wanting more representation. Um, what was your takeaway from that experience of getting In Bibi's Kitchen out to the world? So everyone passed on it except for Tenspi. And, you know, I just I just actually wrote Lorena, the senior vice president at Tenspi today, just saying, like, thank you for seeing the bigger picture before so many could. Because that's what it takes to be a leader. It takes foresight, right? Like, you can't you can't always be just stuck on what's new and trendy, you know, because then you don't leave room for innovation. And I think that's what's so exciting because I think this book landed exactly where it was supposed to be. It was it was done with tenderness. Tenspeed really just put a lot of effort into making sure it was beautiful, heard me at every single turn, never pushed back. And so I haven't really spent a lot of time thinking about all the people who passed on the book, because for me, it's like, look at it, look what glorious piece of work it is, you know? And, and, you know, I hope the people who are like, this is such a big project can look back on it and learn something for a minute and then now extend the opportunity to someone else. You know, kind of going back a little bit to the kind of process of putting the book together, you know, you said it is such a big project and such an impressive project. And you must have had different levels of familiarity with the countries and the foods that you were researching and including. What were some of the learning moments for you during that process? I would say the countries I didn't know much about, like Madagascar, you know, it was scary. I was like, oh my God, Khadija, our photographer is going to Madagascar alone. Like there was like some fear involved around that because one, I wasn't on the ground. Two, I didn't know if our, our fixer, who's now my family, would take care of Khadija in the way that I was going to take care of her. So a lot of it, the learning curve for me wasn't so much about the cuisine of the country, but more about the way of the place, right? So like when she flew to Mozambique, she was stuck in immigration for like four hours. So you can imagine, I'm like, oh my God, they're going to send her back. They're going to send her to Kenya. You know, it was, it was, it's what happens in travel in that you're never certain what's going to happen until you arrive at your destination. So there was a lot of that, but there wasn't in terms of like recipes and, and stories, like really the threat of this book is the Indian Ocean and like a lot of what's eaten in Comoros are eaten in Mozambique, uh, maybe just seasoned a little bit differently or maybe not as much coconut milk. But the threat of it really is the Indian Ocean. So there, I, I can't say I was completely stumped, but I, I was, when it came to travel, I was a little afraid. 
When you talk about the recipes that are in the book, are there any that you've been leaning on, particularly the last couple months? Because Lolly and I have previously talked on the podcast about how we've like fallen in and out of love with cooking at different times during this, yeah. <laughs> this time at home. Me too. What have been your faves? Um, I've made, so my partner is Ghanaian and he cooks a ton. And so I've made a lot of side dishes. Um, I've made, I've made protein heavy side dishes like the full, which is in the book. And the warmthness of the full really does remind me so much of home. And by home, I mean like growing up in Seattle and eating a lot with Ethiopians and Eritreans. And so I think I think I would say that the most food I've made in this pandemic from the book has really come from Eritrea because I've been obsessing. I don't know what it is, but I've had like a a reintroduction to Berbere in a way that maybe I hadn't been making it in the years past, but... That's what I've been cooking. I've been making a lot of dorowa, which is an uh, Ethiopian Eritrean stew. I've been making kicha, which is like a starter bread in, in Ethiopia that's super easy to make in an Eritrea. And then I've been making just Somali pancakes. I've been wanting comfort food because I'm always anxious now. <laughs> that's totally fair. <laughs> I'm also very anxious. Um, I'm like, bring on the pounds. <laughs> seriously, just sort of thinking about those recipes and you know you've you've both for this book but also like throughout your life it's you know it sounds like you've whether it's your career or your friendships or your family like it has led you towards a lot of travel do you think food has kind of helped you feel that connection to travel or sort of satiate that need to be moving in some way when we've all been grounded Oh, absolutely. I think food is a gateway into other cultures, you know, and I, I, I have this conversation often with myself, but by the time I'm cooking, I'm, I'm, I'm just going exactly to what I know. But even for myself, I'm always asking myself, what countries do I know the least about? How can I get closer to knowing more about them than I research recipes, you know? Um, Someone was asking me today, this is getting a little off track, but in another interview, someone was asking me, why do you think recipe appropriation is such a big issue? And I, and I was saying that I feel it's only an issue when you don't have the desire to credit the culture it comes from, and then to use that food as a way to really get into that culture and learn more. You know, when you try to occupy it is when it's an issue, right? And so I, I really do. I think I for me, I could... You know, I can make dumplings at home and feel transported. I hope that answers your question. No, no, it really does. And sort of, you know, going on to food appropriation and recipe appropriation. I mean, you kind of touched on this before, but where do you think that line lies between who gets to cook what? I think all of it is rooted in respect. You know, like, I think everyone should eat what they want. They should cook what they want. But... How are you sharing that space when you're in it? Are you occupying it? Are you closing the door behind you when you get into someone else's culture? You know, are you, who else is in that position to better tell those stories that is from that place, you know? And then also like, what is your reasoning for being in that space? Is it to learn more and to bring the world closer to one another and to make the table longer? Or is it to just, again, occupy it, you know? It's like... Come on, we've got the internet now. You're going to get called out. <laughs> um, 
So obviously we have all been fairly grounded uh, by the pandemic, which has definitely limited where we can travel and who will let us in. Um, (laughs) For the first time, Americans are being shut out. (laughs) But even if you think about the summer, you know, I have friends who are in South Africa and there were not even domestic flights. So I think that, you know, when we look at how everyone is moving, it's a little different than it was a year ago, Um, regardless of where your passport is from, though, sadly, those of us with the U.S. passports are, which is only me on this call, are at a loss. Um, but looking at the winter or next year, kind of where are you looking to go? What are you looking to eat? What are you wanting to see first person that you've maybe been researching online or looking at longingly over this time? So I'm praying that if I'm really, really lucky, I get to go to Zanzibar in December. Mm in a small island in Tanzania. But the places that I've been thinking about for so long and like really stock every day, not every day, but like weekly I go looking, is Vietnam and Cambodia. And then I'm like, shouldn't I say big things like that for like when you're like on a honeymoon? And then I'm like, well, the world has gone crazy. You should go now. (laughs) Okay, eating. I want to eat anything that the people in Vietnam will share with me and in Cambodia. Before I used to be really weary of eating street food and now I'm like, no, I, if, I, if I survive COVID, I could do whatever. <laughs> so um, you co-wrote the book with Julia Tertian and all the photographs have been taken by Khadija M. Farah and Jennifer May. Each recipe is contributed by a grandmother What did it feel like to collaborate with so many women on this project? So 24 of the 75 recipes are by grandmothers. So a lot of them are not from the grandmothers, but you know, it's it's a book in that every single person who touched it was a woman. As stressful as it was and as many moving parts that there were, now looking back and I have so many fond memories about it. It is, it's wild to think that something this grand can come to life and it could come through from a woman who lives in a village in Mozambique, a woman whose kitchen is outside in Zanzibar or a a friend of a friend's grandmother in in Comoros who doesn't even use the internet. Um, To see it come full circle in this way and to see it just, to feel like it belongs to so many people for me is the biggest joy. And you know, my, my prayer is the same almost every day. Let me be of service. And in that this book, it really feels like what I wanted to do got accomplished. And obviously it could not have happened without Julia. It could not have happened without Khadija. It could not have happened without Jen May. Um, But every single person who worked on this book was a woman. That's amazing. What a beautiful thing. I honestly can't wait to read it and cook from it. Um, If people want to find it, where can they get a copy of the book and maybe pick up some condiments? Well, they can get the book everywhere books are sold. I would suggest that you find an indie bookstore and support them. Um, In terms of our condiments, I would suggest that you order from www.bestbestsauce.com. What is your local bookstore where you might find it in store? 
I love the green light here in Fort Greene. I live a few blocks away from it. I also love Books Are Magic. Yeah, so those are my two stores. Both of which you can order from online if you do not live in New York City. And where can people find you on social media? Just Hawa Hassan. Perfect. I'm at Oh Hey There Mayor. I'm at Lale Hanna. Be sure to follow Women Who Travel on Instagram and subscribe to our newsletter. Links to everything we've mentioned, including Hawa's book, will be in the show notes. Be sure to grab a copy. You will not regret it. Happy cooking, and we'll talk to you next week. Hi, I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor of The New Yorker and host of The New Yorker Fiction Podcast. On the podcast, I ask a great contemporary writer to select a favorite story from the magazine's almost 100-year archive to read and discuss. Together, we delve into the story, exploring its themes, its style, and what makes fiction work. You can listen to authors like Otessa Moshfeg talk about why we write. Story, or attaching a story or creating a story, is this inclination that we all have to stop spinning. And you can hear writers like George Saunders discuss the nature of storytelling. On the first read, you accept these things as descriptions and they make you see the scene, but every line is a chance to inflect the reader's mind. You'll discover new favorite authors and read old favorites in new ways. Episodes of the New Yorker Fiction Podcast are released on the first of every month. Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts.